Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Great. Good evening. Thank you for watching this virtual luxury event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition cost. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This evening, Dr. Ken Masugi will be giving our annual Constitution Day lecture to celebrate and commemorate the signing of the Constitution, which took place on September 17, 1787. Dr. Masugi is a senior fellow of the Claremont Institute and a senior contributor to the online journal American Greatness. He is also a lecturer in government at the John Hopkins University Center for American Government in Washington, DC. He has served 10 years in the federal government as a speechwriter for cabinet department heads and special assistant for the then chairman of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, Clarence Thomas. Dr. Masugi has co-edited or co-authored a dozen books on American politics and political thought. Dr. Masugi, welcome and thank you for being with us today. Uh, well, uh, a hearty thanks to the Institute of World Politics for inviting me to address this serious audience in honor of our Constitution. I have known the Institute's founder and president, John Lanchowski, well before I came to Washington to work for Clarence Thomas back in 1986. John has remained an inspiration and mentor to me ever since, as he has to many of you. Uh, thank you, John, and IWP staff for your kindnesses. This year's Constitution Day comes at a fearful time for friends of constitutional government. Some now even fear its collapse, whether by raging mobs or scheming lawyers. Either way, whether by force or by fraud, from fists or from sophistry, tyranny lurks to replace constitutional government. Natural right is threatened on all sides. This division stems from a stark question. Is America a land uh, uh, to be proud of or ashamed of? An exceptional nation for its virtues, prosperity, faith, and strength, or an exceptionally evil and hypocritical one for its slavery, materialism, bigotry, and imperialism? Somehow we have woken up, so to speak, in a nation, um, uh, 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 in a world many of us no longer recognize. We even dispute the evidence of our eyes. Just two months ago, mobs threatened the Freedmen's Memorial that you see here. Uh, it stands a few miles away from here in Lincoln Park in Northeast Washington, DC, near the Senate buildings. It may yet disappear one night, never to be seen again in public. But 144 years ago, on April 14, 1876, that park was packed with an extraordinary crowd for the unveiling of this statue. They had come to honor the recent freeing of slaves in the war and the upcoming centennial of the Declaration of Independence. President Grant, 
and many other political and social luminaries attended, along with thousands of African Americans. The abolitionist orator Frederick Douglass delivered his justly famed and controversial eulogy of Abraham Lincoln. They may well have been the largest racially integrated crowd to include an American president and addressed by a black American until the inauguration of Barack Obama. Financed by contributions from freedmen, including black Civil War veterans, the commission had worked with an American sculptor on the design. The freed slave was modeled after a former fugitive slave, originally proposed as kneeling. The muscular man is clearly rising, broken shackle on one wrist, his head and eyes focused forward. This man is no more kneeling, as critics claim, than sprinter Jesse Owens was kneeling to Hitler before he won four gold medals at the 1936 Olympics 60 years later. Yet controversy remains even when none should exist. Are we incapable of distinguishing between servitude and freedom, between someone acknowledging the sovereignty of God and the worship of a man? But the question becomes more than rhetorical when we reflect on American history. The American founders, after all, protested being slaves of the British, even while owning slaves. And the abolition of slavery took place only after the bloodiest war in American history. We today are confused about slavery. Today, it has become synonymous with racism, oppression, income inequality, marriage, poverty, and childhood. I would reply to today's emphasis on anti-racism with a discussion of anti-slavery. And for that, we must return to slavery's original meaning and the man who did the most to end it, Abraham Lincoln. Keep in mind that Lincoln's entire approach to abolishing slavery is characterized by distinguishing it from issues of race. Today's race-obsessed understanding of American slavery produces perverse policies and attitudes consumed by passion. But equality is not a passion. Treating equality and the issues around it as defined by passion hinders our understanding this profound subject. It requires instead reason. In my remarks today, I can only hint at the depth of the American concept of equality, which we approach through its denial in slavery. Lincoln declared that if slavery is not evil, nothing is. He would be neither slave nor master. Just keep in mind for now that Lincoln's succinct definition of slavery, you work, I eat. You work, I eat. This lies at the heart of what he meant by equality of natural right. This definition of slavery, which Lincoln gave in his July 10, 1858 celebration of the Declaration of Independence, will produce much clarity about the Civil War, the American founding, and the nature of constitutional government. The core of American political history, I will argue, has been a struggle against the different guises taken on by the perpetual party of you work, I eat. At this point, I'm tempted to call the rest of my lecture, you listen, I speak, 
but I will leave generous time for questions. So I am absolved of any charge of attempting to enslave you, my wonderful audience. Now the word slavery makes its first appearance in the Constitution in the 13th Amendment, adopted in December 1865, months after the end of the Civil War. It is brief. Section 1. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Section 2. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Let's begin from the most elementary fact. This is the Constitution's first mention of slavery, that is of the word. Before the 13th Amendment, there is no mention of slavery, of masters, certainly not of race or sex in the Constitution. There was never any need for federal constitutional amendments to allow women to vote or hold federal office or for an African-American to be president. But an anti-slavery amendment was essential to prevent one human being from owning another. This alone tells us the difference between slavery and various natural uh, distinctions. Lincoln pled for unity in the face of seven states that had seceded during the hapless President Buchanan's remaining days after the election. Throughout his speech, Lincoln appealed to legal and moral logic, his oath of office, and the need for political compromises. Less remembered is what happened that very morning of the inauguration. Following an all-night session, the Senate approved by one vote the 13th Amendment and sent the House-approved measure to President Buchanan and to President-elect Lincoln, who would be inaugurated at noon that day. The th this 13th Amendment, he said, declares that, quote, the federal government shall never interfere with the domestic institutions of the states, including that of persons held to service. Lincoln voices no objection to it. No objection to this euphemism for slavery? What in the name of the planet of the apes is going on here? We need to keep in mind what Lincoln would later say. My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union and is not either to save it, save or to destroy slavery. His having no objection is a lawyer's dodge. That does not mean I endorse. Lincoln's immediate concern in his first hour as president was less to prevent secession but to make it morally indefensible, even more wicked than slavery. Secession would destroy the freedom of self-government, which means in turns elections and democratic procedures. Having lost an election, secession is another version of willful self-exertion or tyranny. We see these same passions today, suggesting other anti-constitutional or illegal measures. They are all, like secession, ultimately tyrannical. If one defies a fair majority vote, one is asserting his or her own will over that of one's fellow citizens. We know that the Civil War freed the slaves, and we should also know that Lincoln was not an abolitionist. 
he constantly reiterated that he wished to put slavery in the course of ultimate extinction. That is, new anti-slavery state by new state, by the forces of trade and industrialization, and above all, by calling a morally indifferent nation back to its father's wisdom and moral acuity. In this light, we see that Lincoln's non-objection to the original pro-slavery 13th Amendment was intended to show the country and the whole world how indulgent the North was of the South's demands. The Union is accommodating, the South unreasonable. Secession was unnecessary. The South could have their slaves in peace and perpetuity. Eventually, they might even be compensated for them. If disunion or war came, it would be on account of the South. And the diehards in the South uh, could see through Lincoln's offers, especially the pro-slavery 13th Amendment. Uh, they were all throwaway items, like a car salesman's bonus features. The amendment, think of other vanity and seriously proposed constitutional amendments, stood no chance of being ratified by three-fourths of the states, even if the seceding states returned. So when it started, the war was about preserving the Union. Some make Lincoln's later turn to abolition as a contradiction or a sign of his change of heart or electoral calculation. But the only confusion is in the minds of those who don't see what Lincoln knew that the Union was the only means to the end of eliminating slavery. Unlike many abolitionists who were fine with secession, Lincoln knew it would be not only impossible to eliminate slavery with two separate nations, it would be impossible to maintain any democratic nation. In fact, Lincoln's Civil War statesmanship revolved around the meaning of saving the Union. The mean of salvation deepens throughout the Civil War, as Americans would later hear in the Gettysburg Address. Lincoln led the nation from first inaugural necessity to the second inaugural fulfillment from the saving of the integrity, the physical integrity of the nation to the saving of its soul. All his moral objection to secession applied with even greater political, moral, and religious force to slavery. But of course, there is no second inaugural without a first. The author of the temperance address knew full well that a human being is both body and soul. Lincoln saved both the body and the soul of the nation. With this background, let us return to the boldness uh, of the real 13th Amendment, not this bogus one that uh, was passed by uh, Congress by the Senate the day of Lincoln's inauguration. The Constitution's silence on slavery led to the language of the notorious three-fifths clause, which counted slaves as three-fifths of free persons for the purposes of establishing taxation and representation. And the fugitive slave clause uses language such as all other persons or person held to service or labor. And even more telling instances instance of uh, silence on slavery is one of the two unamendable clauses of the Constitution. Congress may not prohibit uh, 
the slave trade. They used euphemisms for that prior to 1808. And at first opportunity in 1808, Congress passed a law prohibiting the international slave trade and provided the death penalty as punishment. Of course, this action presupposes a legitimate power of Congress to deal with slavery nationally. Such fears characterized the slave state's resistance to national power generally. The founders' refusal to mention slavery in the Constitution was, was quite deliberate. The founders all thought that slavery would die out. They eliminated the slightest hint that they approved of slavery while not abolishing it. Surely the Declaration of Independence played a major role in this view. The document that brought forth the new nation also made the inequality of slavery illegitimate. No one consents to be a slave. The Declaration's clauses denouncing the specific practices of British tyranny, for example, proliferating bureaucrats and taxing without representation, exemplified the new Americans' spiritedness on their own behalf. But they did not think through what the legacy of slavery would be. Thus, well into the 19th century, colonization or return to Africa was a, a perfectly respectable, albeit uh, impractical view of how to deal with America after slavery. But there are other clauses of the original Constitution that raise the slavery issue. Most notable is Article 4, Section 2, the original Privileges and Immunities Clause. The citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. What are those privileges and immunities? Does this mean that a slaveholder could take his slave anywhere in the country? Does this mean a free black citizen retains his rights in a slave state? There were accommodations. When George Washington brought his household slave with him to the Philadelphia Convention, he was under the Pennsylvania law that made a slave free after a limited number of consecutive days of residency. So his personal slave was on a shuttle between Philadelphia and Mount Vernon. The nation divided in the 1850s over the issue of slavery in the territories. The founders held to the standards of the pre-Constitution Northwest Ordinance, which prohibited the introduction of new slaves into the territories and thereby the states formed out of those territories. Uh, so those states included Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. But anti-slavery did not mean political equality. Some of the states formed from the Northwest Ordinance would later prohibit the entry of free blacks, as well as black slaves. Forget about voting and other rights, too, for blacks. But there were no anti-slavery provisions, provisions at all for the new southern states to the west of Georgia. No political party continued the moral opposition to slavery of the Federalist Party, which dissolved after Jefferson's triumph in the election of 1800. The Democratic Party dominated national politics until 1860, interrupted by, only by two Whig military hero presidents and prominent Whigs uh, such as Daniel Webster and Henry Clay. The national institutions, 
presidency, Congress, courts, defended slavery, and a growing pro-slavery school of thought developed centered on uh, Thomas Jefferson's loving creation, the University of Virginia. Thus was elevated centuries of practice, mere economic self-interest, and the pride of owning slaves to an exalted position. Those who held to the older view of the founders that slavery was wrong, but should not be uprooted immediately, were left with little national voice. For example, John Quincy Adams or John Jay during the Missouri crisis. The new alien force, which rejected the founders' natural rights beliefs and drew on German historicist philosophy for intellectual justification, was finally met by the rise of the Republican Party. Yet one should not mistake the Republicans for a pure abolitionist party. In its first national platform, it condemned those twin relics of barbarism, slavery and polygamy. It drew strength from the collapsing Whig Party's internal improvements policy and from the growing temperance movement. Anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic know-nothings came to the new party. Lincoln would berate the know-nothings in private, but would make Irish jokes in his speeches. The Republican Party was not a seminar on Aristotle. It follows that campaigning in his 1858 Senate race against Stephen Douglas, Lincoln had to attract voters who wanted to keep blacks, free or slave, out of Illinois. Meanwhile, Douglas demagogued that Lincoln supported sexual promiscuity among the races. Against this reliance on what he'd labeled as natural disgust, Lincoln had to argue for natural right and against its denial in uh, the phrase, you work, I eat. But to the South, Lincoln was an extremist. The Southern states did not even permit him to appear on their 1860 ballots. This underscores the oligarchic nature of the South and its fear of being governed by the consent of the governed, a principle, of course, denied by slavery. Despite the growing differences, Lincoln was generous toward the South. They are what we would be, he reiterated to Northern audiences. The South is not totally debased. The North is not totally enlightened, far from it. And both North and South benefited economically from slavery. Yet both condemned the slave trader as evil. They could be morally closer than the abolitionists or pro-slavery zealots preached. The South concluded that the expansion of the United States into the West would only increase the states hostile or indifferent to slavery. Once secession took place, war was the only answer. Keep in mind the rest of the world was watching. The divided republic could not remain a free nation when imperialist powers threatened. Britain, France, Spain, and even Russia had claims on North America. They would play off the American nations and perhaps even individual states against each other. In some we can say with political philosopher Harry Jaffa that the Civil War was Thomas Jefferson arguing with himself. The author of the Declaration of Independence 
fighting the author of the Kentucky resolutions, as well as proposer of uh, flawed racial theories. Lincoln summarized the necessity and the nobility of the Civil War in his July 4th, 1861 special message to Congress following the Confederate attack on Fort Sumter. In closing his war message, Lincoln wonders, why does the, con why does the Confederacy not begin its constitution with we the people? Instead, they replaced it with deputies of the states. Lincoln clarifies, this is essentially a people's contest, he said. The leading object is to elevate the condition of men, to lift artificial weights from all shoulders, to afford all an unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life, yielding to partial and temporary departures from necessity. This is the leading object of the government for whose existence we contend. Without mentioning slavery, Lincoln made the purpose of the Civil War an unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life. We could examine numerous instances of Lincoln's statesmanship advancing 13th, uh, uh, the uh, purposes of the 13th Amendment throughout the war. But let's examine the most important, the Emancipation Proclamation. Often mistaken for an emancipation of all slaves, the Emancipation Proclamation of uh, September 22nd, 1862, actually issued on January 1st, 1863, synopsizes Lincoln's strategy and principle. Of course, it was attacked then and today as a worthless gesture, not actually freeing any slaves. In the same vein, the proclamation could not have succeeded in its grand object had it freed any slaves in the Union. Its moral success rested on its appearance of moral indifference. Thus, in an earlier criticism of abolition, Lincoln observed, there are 50,000 bayonets in the Union armies from the border slave states. Might they go over to the rebels? The Union cause would be lost without the slave states of Kentucky and Maryland, and with the slave state of Missouri no longer neutral. Lincoln was reported to have said early in the war, I hope to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. The Union Army victory at Antietam, not far up the road from the Institute here, on September 17th would permit the proclamation of September 22nd. That victory meant the coalition of free and slave states would hold against the secessionists. The war's objective of affording all an unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life might now begin to be fully pursued, fully pursued. Even here, Lincoln had to proceed cautiously. The proclamation was an executive order, not a law, followed from his, following from his power as commander-in-chief. Uh, you know the controversy about executive orders. It was a war measure controversial in the North and especially among pro-Union Democrats. The proclamation therefore must not free any slave in any loyal state, Kentucky, Maryland, Missouri, or later on West Virginia, or in the parts of the South where the Union Army prevailed. 
as in Louisiana and Tennessee. It covered only those areas involved in war. What would such an extension of presidential war power mean? Previously, Lincoln had forbidden his generals to free slaves in Missouri and Kentucky, despite the benefit of depriving the enemy of a resource. The military was liberating slaves as it, as it advanced. But now with the proclamation, the fugitives for freedom were protected by the national government. And uh, the military could entice slaves to free their masters, weakening and demoralizing the Southern war effort. As the war became lost, the South had to propose emancipation to recruit slaves into its armies. The Union boldly spread word of the proclamation among the slaves. In Florida, an army unit of freedmen was sent on a covert mission to spread word of the proclamation to plantations and thus encourage slaves to free. Of course, masters feared retribution and even massacres from their freed slaves. Thus, what the Declaration of Independence had made a reason for independence, the British tyrant encouraging domestic insurrections, had now become a means for restoring the principles of the Declaration. To understand America, we need to grasp the reason behind seeming contradictions and to see the ultimate purpose. The South reacted as might be expected for those being threatened by death from their slaves. They executed captured black soldiers and their white officers. On April 18, 1864, Lincoln eloquently protested the Fort Pillow massacre of 300 black soldiers and their white officers. He had introduced black soldiers into Union ranks, and for that, he said, in appealing to the consciences of his Maryland audience, I am responsible for it to the American people to the Christian world, to history, and on my final account to God. Having determined to use the Negro as a soldier, there is no way but to give him all the protection given to any other soldier. Lincoln was saying that the laws of war and of natural law apply to black soldiers' decent treatment by both South and North. This states plainly what he had said poetically in the Gettysburg Address and what he would say in his second inaugural. The black soldiers were part of the proof for the truth of the proposition that all men are created equal. Lincoln's radicalism is found in his conservatism. He is radical in returning to the ways of the fathers. In summary, the 13th Amendment affirmed in peace and for all America the Emancipation Proclamation's wartime measures. The amendment transformed the entire document from one that tolerated slavery to one that rejected it, and uh, thus uh, conforming it to the Declaration. There are no slaves without masters, so in eliminating slavery, the 13th Amendment necessarily dissolves the class of masters. Indeed, it destroys the oligarchy that had ruled the South and thus liberated most uh, Southern whites uh, as well as slaves. To review its achievement, the 13th Amendment was not merely an addition, 
but a change of the entire document. We can note a few specific changes uh, in the original Constitution. Of course, it made the three-fifths clause um, uh, unintelligible, uh, but perversely, it increased the power of the South in the House of Representatives because the freed blacks were now counted in full and not three-fifths of their number. It stripped Article Four of any pro-slavery meaning. There is no privilege or immunity of slaveholders to take, to, to take their property where they wished. And finally, Article Four's guarantee of Republican government to the states is free of any implication of slavery. The ambiguities, even contradictions of the Constitution are now resolved in favor of the framers' intentions. In other words, we now read the original Constitution in light of the Declaration of Independence as the framers intended. This justifies their original decision to omit the word slave in the document. Because we know about the failures of Reconstruction and the narrow interpretations given the Civil War amendments, we fail to appreciate the revolution the 13th Amendment inaugurated. We know what Lincoln wanted out of the 13th Amendment he fought for when we examine his Reconstruction policies in Louisiana, in which he supports the vote for, quote, the very intelligent freedmen and for black veterans. Surely this is right for some blacks, which Lincoln never previously supported. It would have improved the standing of poor whites as well. Uh, assuming you could never give to blacks what whites uh, uh, themselves lack. By contrast with the 14th Amendment, the 13th displays a simplicity, its reliance on Congress and the consent of the governed expressed through their elections. This means the rejection of slavery should be reaffirmed by the electorate. Arrogant courts or an imperious executive should not act on their own, even for just purposes though that remains possible. This reliance on public opinion was perilous for the freedmen, but puts the focus on what democracy and its statesmen uh, requires. Uh, thus, a study of the, uh, of the amendments ratification debates, while important, also needs to take into account what was done under Lincoln's authority during the Civil War from the first inaugural on. More than the splendor of the Gettysburg Address, this prelude to the 13th Amendment features heroes ranging from the unappreciated President Grant, generals, ordinary soldiers and uh, citizens, black and white, and crafty politicians, including the craftiest one of all, President Lincoln. The welcome adoptions of the 14th and 15th Amendments do not make the 13th superfluous. In fact, the contested language of the 14th, uh, privileges and immunities, due process, equal protection, is strengthened by the 13th Amendment's abolition of slavery, which includes slavery's badges and incidents. We see this strength in the passage over President Andrew Johnson's veto of the Civil Rights Act of uh, 1866, which still remains the law of the land. This protection of equal rights in law enforcement and contracts for black and white uh, was constitutional 
under the 13th Amendment. Now, in 1896, 30 years after the passage of this law, Justice Harlan's famous colorblind constitution dissent in the railway segregation case of Plessy v. Ferguson deepens this interpretation of a robust 13th Amendment. Uh, in his dissent, he recalls the service of black soldiers in the Civil War as a down payment toward universal civil freedom. In famously declaring the Constitution to be colorblind, Harlan pointed out the full meaning of the 13th Amendment. It not only struck uh, down the institution of slavery as previously existing in the United States, but he went on, it prevents the imposition of any burdens or disabilities that constitute badges of slavery or servitude. It decreed universal civil freedom in this country. That is, each American, black or white, owns himself in the language of John Locke. This, of course, leads logically to equal Republican citizenship. That would be in line with Harlan's closing argument against the Louisiana segregation law, incompatibility with the Republican guarantee to the states uh, uh, of the original Constitution. Harlan's concluding emphasis on equal Republican rights for all hits the mark. He would return to the Declaration uh, for interpretation of the 13th Amendment. Today, Lincoln's definition of slavery, you work, I eat, should uh, ring in our ears to remind us of the core meaning of the 13th Amendment and thereby of the meaning of the Declaration and of America. Now, how did this change take place from Lincoln's view of equality to the anti-racism cacophony we hear today? In sum, the great shift took place in two stages. First, with progressive Woodrow Wilson's unique attack on the Declaration as an outdated individualistic document. That didn't work. A far more clever president, Franklin Roosevelt, instead reinterpreted the Declaration. Replacing Lincoln's equality of natural rights, FDR redefined the Declaration to be a guarantee of socialized security. Such an indeterminate goal sets no limit to what government can do for that overriding psychological purpose. FDR replaced the old Lockean social contract with a new contract between government and the governed. And to emphasize his seriousness, he condemned as a fascist anyone who criticized this guarantee of unlimited government. Anyone who is shocked should read his 1944 State of the Union address, often known as, as his, his second Bill of Rights speech. Let me conclude now with the following thoughts. The equality of the American founding often makes people think this means that differences we all can see aren't real. Uh, watching football teaches us that. But everyone acknowledges the injustice of you work, I eat. Lincoln pointed out this meant that all people acknowledge natural right. Slavery twists the soul of the master, whether in an, indi whether in an individual or a mob. 
Earlier generations saw this too in innumerable ways. George Washington's disgust at seeing household slaves who bore the facial features of the master. Richard Johnson of Kentucky, Martin Van Buren's vice president, wanted his daughters from his common law slave wife to be admitted into white society, but their father's love could not give his daughters legal protection. Here comes my friend Douglas, Lincoln announced as he saw Frederick Douglass enter the White House. If we berate America for its worst racial injustices, we must hail the nation for producing the strongest souls and its best friendships. These are the inequalities that make clear a deeper, more fundamental equality. So I close with Flannery O'Connor, one of America's profoundest storytellers about race, precisely because she transcends the cliches we find ourselves plagued with. In her 1965 short story, All That Rises Must Converge, uh, not that other short story, she presents us with a vain mother who boasts of her grandfather's plantation of 200 slaves and the mother's even more preposterous progressive son who desperately tries to meet black professionals on newly integrated buses and then fantasizes about introducing his mother to a black fiance. Revelation literally strikes them both, but too late. Now, before the 13th Amendment, peoples of all races owned black slaves. The whole nation prospered and suffered from slavery. As we celebrate the Constitution, we should not forget this injustice. Yet justice is not the whole of life. This is why Aristotle and Jesus make friendship a higher virtue. We achieve a civic friendship, that is patriotism, uh, our devotion of equality. When we together celebrate our common political past, past and its achievements, as we do on Constitution Day. Uh, thanks very much. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Dr. Masugi. Um, so yeah, now we're going to transition to a Q&A. So if you have a question, please feel free to comment in the Q&A portal at the bottom of your screen. So we, have a, we do have a few questions here. Um, the first one is, bearing in mind the official title of your lecture, as you undoubtedly already know, the Union's strategic victory at Antietam is credited for making it feasible for Lincoln to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. In your professional opinion, is there also a direct cause and effect between Antietam and the 13th Amendment? Thank you. Well, uh, there is still a lot of distance to go between the Emancipation Proclamation and uh, I don't think we can 13th... hear you. Uh, excuse me? What's that? Uh, th there's a distance between the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment, even though both freed slaves. But Lincoln feared- I don't think we can hear you still. You can't hear me. Um, I don't, here, let me turn off my mic. 
Okay, can you hear me now? Mm. Oh, here, no. I don't know what the... I don't think I touched anything. Let me go. Okay, so... Me, um, exit, exit full Apparently screen. everyone can hear can you, you hear but me, me. So, um, yeah, so if you just want to go um, answer that question and then sure. maybe... Obviously, uh, Lincoln was concerned that after the war, uh, there was at least the theoretical possibility that the slave owners would attempt to uh, get their slaves back. And so far as we know, even following the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, that was never successfully done. That is, all the slaves that were freed during the war were, were freed forever. Um, and uh, I, I don't believe there was ever an instance in which uh, the, uh, those slaves were ever returned. Um, I mean, who would enforce such a law? Uh, now, uh, uh, what, uh, so the, what the coming of the 13th did, and you, you know this movie, uh, uh, Spielberg movie that has a lot of drama in it and so on, uh, but uh, that does show you Lincoln's cleverness and uh, his, his commitment to making sure that this achievement of the Civil War uh, was uh, to continue in perpetuity. General Pulaski issued an emancipation order freeing slaves in Georgia before Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. I believe it was his order number seven, but he was ordered to withdraw it. Can you speak to this? Yeah, uh, well, uh, I, I refer to, referred to Missouri and Kentucky, uh, where uh, Missouri, especially, where uh, generals were liberating slaves, and Lincoln shut it down immediately um, because he, he wanted to make sure that uh, the other southern states that, that, excuse me, the other slave states that were contributing uh, arms to the Union cause did not become alarmed. Um, and, and so that principle would uh, uh, hold uh, uh, true. General Pulaski, that was the, the revolution, I think. Are, are you confusing a couple different things? Is that there's General Pulaski was uh, active in the, uh, unless there was another General Pulaski on, Oh, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. Um, uh, uh, so yeah, that. So my uh, my my state. I'll I'll rest with my statement then that uh, Lincoln was uh, being very strict about uh, generals on their own uh, emancipating slaves because he wanted to make absolutely sure that it was the Union cause. Uh, that prevailed throughout the first year or two of the Civil War? That's a good question, thank you. Uh, let me, uh, b before other questions come up, just let me say this. Uh, the, the great problem with the discussion of uh, race today, I, I heard this, um, this man, uh, Kendry, who's published this book, Anti-Racism, um, and I, I think that uh, it just contributes confusion. He, his emphasis on, uh, well, you can't just uh, uh, propose policies, but you have to be actively anti-racist. And that's the new neutral stance. 
because you can't be neutral toward this great evil of racism. Well, that's just a form of, of fanaticism uh, that Lincoln denounced in the temperance address, which is a really wonderful speech because it shows Lincoln as a satirist, uh, as a great uh, analyst of human nature. Uh, the temperance speech is uh, uh, looks on the surface as a person, as, as a speech denouncing alcoholism or drunkenness, but in fact, it's a, a speech. It's a speech denouncing not just people who are drunk on alcohol, but a speech that denounces people who are drunk on power. Uh, and he does it in a very, I, I shouldn't use the word denounce, it, it's a, a wonderful critique of that world. And ultimately it's a world of, uh, th that's as totalitarian, tyrannical, uh, as the uh, tyranny of alcoholism or tyranny to slavery or tyranny to abolition that uh, uh, the promoters of this wish to, wish to support. Um, and, and so it's, he's not saying uh, just relax and allow evil behavior to proceed. He's not saying that, uh, but Lincoln is saying uh, you have to use reason and not passion um, in order to combat these uh, fierce political passions of the day that lead to uh, suppression of, uh, a fanatical suppression of of, of alcohol um, or fanaticism regarding support for slavery or opposition to slavery, um, because all even the best motives, the best causes, uh, can lead to fanaticism. Uh, John Brown would be one example. Uh, okay, um, let's see. I don't. Uh, spot any questions in the queue. Ah, here. What is the logic of applying the 14th Amendment to immigrants today? This is particularly when the 14th Amendment was clearly meant for former slaves and their children. Yeah, well, that was one point uh, I was making uh, by preferring the 13th Amendment. I, I don't, not an enemy of the 14th Amendment, but I think it confuses a lot of different things. I think the key moral struggle that Americans have is the issue of slavery. Um, and as I tried to point out, Lincoln throughout the war differentiated between slavery and race. Uh, and what the 14th Amendment does in, in a kind of a sloppy way uh, is that it makes all of these different categories equal. And uh, as the questioner points out, yeah, uh, it, it was intended, the 14th Amendment, for uh, uh, primarily uh, for the sake of, of, of the former slaves. Um, and, uh, but the wording would make it apply to, to uh, everyone, and not just immigrants. Uh, being singled out, but that immigrants are included. Uh, women, uh, children, 
um, uh, what is left out by the equal protection clause? Uh, well, presumably non-humans, but some serious scholars have argued that the equal protection clause um, includes uh, 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 subhumans, uh, that is, uh, orangutans, uh, any animal with sentient feelings. Uh, and that, cl that clearly goes too far. I mean, that I have no objection to people who want to raise such issues involving uh, animals or children or women. Uh, but uh, whether there ought to be constitutional mandates uh, enforceable by the courts uh, that 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 is a great question, um, and also uh, on the Fourteenth Amendment, there's also this uh, birthright citizenship issue, and uh, that I'm I'm no expert at. I, I just point to the original Constitution's text when it uh, posed requirements for presidency, um, and what a president has to be is a natural born citizen. Now, at the time the Constitution, and uh, you had to be resident, presumably consecutively, for 14 years in the US. Uh, now, presumably, uh, not presumably, George Washington was clearly not a natural born citizen because natural born didn't simply mean you were born on the soil. That would be ridiculous. Um, George Washington was born a subject of the British Empire. Um, uh, so uh, uh, he, he had to be naturalized as a citizen. Um, and, and so the, the, what happens with, um, uh, and, but there's an additional requirement to be president and that is, uh, to have 14 years of, of uh, residence in the US. Um, and so clearly what was intended, and you see subtract 14 years from 1788, and you get before the American Revolution. And so the whole idea of the natural, uh, of that clause of the constitution concerning uh, the president uh, was a sense of loyalty. Are you a part of the social contract? That's the key. Are you a part of the social contract? Not simply whether you were born on American dirt. I mean, there's nothing sacred about American dirt as much as we fight, bleed to, to, to defend it. Uh, so therefore, simply being born on American soil uh, and but actually being uh, of a child of, uh, uh, say, these these uh, people, who, uh, the, these mothers who come in just to just to give birth, so their child could uh, have American citizenship. I mean that. Uh, I think the founders would be horrified by that, and I, I think that's uh, that's not commanded by the Fourteenth Amendment, um, and. and uh, my, my own view of this is that uh, while immigrants, I, I think America's prospered a great deal from immigrants, even though 
there's a downside as well. The way to judge this is not by constitutional fiat, but rather by uh, 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 relationships with the nations in particular. Uh, it gets complicated, of course, but that makes far more sense than using simple, uh, a simple rule. Well, if you're if you're a human being, you're in. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Regardless of of uh, of how you got here. Excuse me. Um, so I, I hope that um, answered your question. Let's see. Take another question here. Um, can you explain again why Abraham Lincoln did not just say no and outlaw slavery? Well, here in brief, uh, uh, Lincoln had no political legal authority to do such a thing. I mean, we think of presidents today, especially following Franklin Roosevelt, that if the president wants something, he gets it. Um, well, that's not the case as much as uh, presidents like to look at the world that way. And it's fortunate that we have a constitution of separated powers. Um, now, there are executive orders, which uh, make it appear as though presidents can do whatever they want, but in fact, they're limited. They are limited. Um, uh, and, um, but even there, it's, it's a very dangerous situation because uh, even when uh, President Trump withdrew the um, uh, Obama's executive order on Iran, uh, still Obama's executive order created certain rights with people. And are those wiped out by Obama's contrary, by, by Trump's contrary executive order? And uh, so the courts fight over these things. So you wonder whether uh, uh, we are in fact being ruled by decrees uh, instead of being ruled by, by laws. Um, what President Lincoln could do is reinfuse America, reinvigorate America's moral objection to slavery. That he never wavered on. He was consistent with. He sometimes had to, to, to minimize talk of it in order to for example, in the first inaugural, stress the unity of the country and the need for that, because not all people agreed with him on the, on the moral question. People agreed, for example, as I said, that the slave trader is the scum of the earth, uh, but uh, they tolerated that uh, uh, such people anyway, at least the South did. Um, but that uh, uh, slavery we were stuck with. And I ask students uh, all the time, undergraduates, well, you, you think we would have gotten rid of your slaves? Uh, and they all say very confidently, yes, but um, I don't know, how often have you given away property worth, say, $20,000, $15,000 in that range with no expectation of any repayment or return? And the the person you, uh, you, you free 
one day can come back and murder you the next day. Uh, there's always that possibility. Um, so as, as Jefferson put it, uh, we have a wolf by the ears um, and we can't let it go. And uh, holding on to it is a pretty questionable uh, issue as well. So um, uh, that, uh, I mean, I could, uh, well, oh, there's another question here. I believe it's important to emphasize the three-fifths cause uh, was a compromise by the Union with the South. South wanted to count the slaves. Yes, yes. Union was willing to count the slaves if they were freed and freed men were given the right to vote. The South didn't want to give freedom to slaves and therefore the Republicans insisted that slaves should be counted at three-fifths of a person with the sole aim of giving slaves full freedom. Uh, Frederick Douglass spoke to this in detail. It's worth highlighting this. Uh, do I agree or disagree? I, would, uh, would, I doubt that I disagree much with Frederick Douglass. Um, and that uh, I think you state, uh, you, you flesh out very well uh, some of the alternatives here regarding the three-fifths clause. Um, and why it came to that. Obviously, it would have been better to have, uh, have the, the, them counted not at all, but remember, it wasn't simply for the purpose of political representation, it was also for taxation. Um, so the, the whole union would benefit from more tax money coming out of the South, uh, but it would also be, uh, they wouldn't want to give the South more, more political power uh, and you're right to emphasize, this is a very good point, that is that the, the, the northern states um, would count the slaves if they were eventually freed and given the right to vote. But I'm not even sure about that because the uh, Douglas often uh, always emphasized that, that the freedmen should have the right to vote. Uh, that wasn't automatic though. Um, and so it's not automatic that that would have been the case. Uh, just because you're not a slave doesn't mean you have all the rights of, of, of white people at that time. Um, uh, now, in, in some of the southern, uh, northern states, that was the case. Uh, you read the dissent in the Dred Scott case, and it's perfectly clear that uh, there were uh, blacks had uh, significant political rights. Uh, who were in the north, um, so that was uh, that's a possibility, but um, in, in and so they they struck a deal. I mean, they created this number, three fifths, and uh, <clears throat> and uh, uh, that was that's one way to look at it. By the way, they're really fascinating abolitionist interpretations of the Constitution. Uh, Lysander Spooner kind of anarchist um, had these ingenious interpretations of uh, uh, various obscure clauses of the Constitution. Uh, and they make perfect sense if you assume that, <coughs> excuse me, every time person is mentioned, you could substitute uh, uh, a black person, free or slave, and th then you'd turn the Constitution into an instrument for liberation. Um, 
And Frederick Douglass at first thought, ah, this is nonsense. And then he was finally persuaded, oh, uh, this does make a great deal of sense. Uh, Clarence Thomas wrote an article about this in the Howard Law Journal <coughs> uh, back in the 1980s. You can look that one up. So he goes through Frederick Douglass and his thinking at that time. But thank you for raising that question. And uh, I guess if there are no more questions, we can just cut it off here. I'm uh, told I'm supposed to end shortly after six. So uh, unless there are other questions, and uh, I guess Hannah can give me a signal and uh, we can- Can you hear me okay? Yes, uh, fine. Okay. Sorry about that. I think there were some technical difficulties on my end, but I appreciate you taking the helm with the Q&A. Um, but yeah, so... No, it's fine. <laughs> I would just like to thank um, Dr. Masugi for joining us today and all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events supporting IWP or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thanks again, everyone. Have a great evening. Yeah. Bye. Thank you.